Hello. Welcome to In the Kitchen with Brett Thorne, a food service industry podcast by Restaurant Hospitality. I'm your host, Senior Food and Beverage Editor Brett Thorne, talking to you shortly after the James Beard Foundation's annual Restaurant and Chef Awards Gala, which I did not attend. I have a lot of travel coming up. I was just in Chicago a couple of weeks ago for the National Restaurant Show, and I have attended the Beard Awards many, many times. I don't think I really need to do it again. In case you haven't been following the awards, they changed their format last year. So now nominees can't just be good at their jobs, but they also have to contribute to making the world a better place. That's nice. It really is, but it's a big shift and controversies have ensued. The changes were made in the aftermath of past winners having been accused of some pretty awful behavior at the height of the Me Too movement and the Beard Foundation felt that they needed to implement a code of ethics. Of course, if you're going to have such a code, you have to enforce it. And as a result, at least one Beard Award nominee was disqualified this year. Others might have been disqualified. We don't know because the Beard Foundation doesn't announce when they're disqualifying somebody. Uh, But at least one uh, disqualified person went public with it. And... uh, It was a whole thing. Uh, Ever since the changes were announced, uh, some people have complained that the awards committee is overstepping its bounds. And maybe they are overstepping their bounds. I don't know. I wrote a whole commentary about it last week that you can check out on our website, restaurant-hospitality.com. Just search for Beard Awards and it will come right up. My guest today, David Burke, has been nominated twice for the Beard Award for Best Chef in New York City once in 1995 when he ran Park Avenue Cafe, and then again in 2006 for his restaurant, David Burke and Donatella. He was also inducted into Who's Who in Food and Beverage in America in 2009. David Burke is legendary. He's an early cutting edge chef who first came to fame when he ran the kitchen of the River Cafe in Brooklyn. He went on to head up the Smith & Walensky Group as well as a variety of his own restaurants. These days, he spends most of his time running restaurants in his home state of New Jersey, but he still has one restaurant in New York, David Burke Tavern, and he's planning on opening another one, a modern brasserie called 277 Park Avenue, later this year. He currently runs 12 restaurants and he consults on a bunch more. I have known David for more than 20 years. He and my former boss, Pam Parsegian, used to cook together at La Cremaillere in Bedford, New York, under chef Waldy Malouf. He's a straight-talking, shoot-from-the-hip kind of guy, and as you'll hear in just a moment, he's honest about his perspective on changing times, and aware of the dangers of becoming a curmudgeonly old codger who says, kids these days, which, in fact, he doesn't do. He comes close, but he doesn't do it. David Burke has remarkable insights into running restaurants, and you are about to get to enjoy hearing from him. Now, please enjoy my interview with the great David Burke. So, how you been? You're busy. I'm busy. Keep busy, yeah. You have uh, a whole bunch of restaurants now and a bakery and stuff. Like, How many yeah. restaurants do you have now? Um, well, I'd have to say close to 18, I guess. I don't know. When, it's, when you say I have, it's a tough thing. We own and operate over a, a dozen and a bakery we own. And then we probably consult for about a half a dozen. 
So, but the consulting for them, when we consult, we do long-term consulting deals, not one year. And we also allow them to utilize our name on signage. So there's still jobs and deals, but, you know, sometimes the consulting ones are better than the ones you own. So, I so. So, uh, so we have 18, we're building and yeah, we're building a, another six or seven currently. So we're waiting for them to be built. So if I, I want to, and I think my audience also wants to understand more about these uh, consulting contracts you do, these long-term things. How, how in general are they set up? What are, what are you promising them and like that? Well, we normally, um, we get approached by people that are either building businesses that or want a, uh, a good brand, a celebrity chef, et cetera, operator in their hotel, office building, resort, downtown area, apartment building, what have you. They approach us uh, and uh, we agree to do, let's call it a consulting or a deal, all right? management deal consulting is a little different but we take a management fee off the top of the gross sales or we have a minimum fee obviously and then uh, that'll go up against the gross sales we usually take between five and six percent of the gross food and beverage sales um and then we wind up looking at the bottom line for them and how we can uh, how we get a piece of that uh, because you certainly want to incentivize us to have a larger bottom line because we're going to get something. We also try and guarantee that we'll be within industry standards and food, beverage, and uh, labor costs, if not below. Sometimes we can tag a, uh, a bonus into that if we do well, but we don't usually work on bonus structure because we can't control. Uh, if, I, if we're consulting for an owner, I can't control how much wine he buys. Right. Or how much money he sp spends on signage and flowers and whatever else they decide to do. So we try to, we, we advise that way. On the management deal side, the consulting deals are good. We, we you know, those are for operating consultants. We also do a consulting deal for appliance companies, and, you know, you know that, that uh, or uh, a spokesperson work, but the management deals are similar, and but we do, and even a consultant deal, we will not consult for less than five years. So we don't do a one-year consultant because at this stage, consulting one year and getting a fee, they, they wind up with your chef, your manager, your, your recipes, your, your style, your this and that, and that lives on the internet forever, right? So even, so the Dave Shepberg's our consultant that, at, at the at the, the Blue Marlin restaurant, blah, 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 that lives out there. So so for one year, unless they're going to pay us close to a three-year term, we'll do it for one year. But otherwise, we don't need the short game. You know, and we like to develop the relationship with the five years. Usually within that five-year period, both parties are happy and we might be doing another project. So we never look at the, at the quick buck. Right. And we did that well during the pandemic where we actually took jobs in the pandemic where we forfeited our management fee against the rent so that nobody was we weren't paying rent. And they weren't paying us, but we got it. We built a team, put them together. If we happen to make a profit, we split it. And then once the pandemic was over, we paid rent. We took our fee. But at least we didn't sit around rotting and our staffs got trained. And that was a very smart move on our part. Well, especially that. since 
it has become difficult to get staff. I mean, it's always been hard, as you know, but it, it seems like it got significantly harder in the past two years. Is that, would you say it's true? Yeah. yeah well, well, the wages went up, right? And But also the talent went down. So it, it's a double whammy. So I'm paying more and I'm getting less quality of person, right? And I think the industry on a whole has attracted, and because of its its coolness to be a chef and or be in the restaurant business and its hipsterness and its popularity on TV, et cetera, you're getting people that are, they think they want to be chefs. They say they want to be chefs. They want to do the Instagram, but they don't want to do the work or the commitment or the passion or the dedication. And I don't want to sound like an old timer that, you know, walked uphill backwards to school, but that 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 going the extra, you know, six day work week, the 70 hour week. I know everyone said it's it's toxic, but you know what? That's how you got you get things done some to a certain point. Doesn't have to be hard work does not have to be toxic. Passion does not have to be toxic, right? Desire, ambition, and uh uh climbing the hill doesn't have to be toxic. There can be a lot of joy in it, but as but if you're not willing to commit to get to the top, you're not going to get there. It doesn't And it, the industry shouldn't change because some people think it has to be slowed down to get there, right? So there's different ways of looking at it. But I think because being a chef is cool now and or a maitre d' or a, a mixologist, people's, people's, they're seeking that before actually understanding the real heartbeat of hospitality makes sense yeah it used to be that if you wanted to be work in the restaurants well maybe you didn't want to work in restaurants maybe that was the only thing you could do and you sort of started from the ground up and you worked and you didn't do it for prestige you either did it because you were addicted to adrenaline or you couldn't find anything else to do and now that it's prestigious it has changed would you say that's accurate I'm agreeing with you. Yes, yes. When I, when it wasn't when it wasn't prestigious, and you went out there. And, listen, a guy my age and and many many others, we never got into the restaurant business to be recognized because it it wasn't didn't exist. There was no goal to be an entrepreneur, a cookbook author, a a, a QVC hawker. You know those things didn't exist, right? Um, so you just wanted to be the quarterback of a kitchen. You wanted to be able to create, maybe control a team of in a kitchen, whether it's a hotel or a nice restaurant. Maybe you would own a restaurant, but that was the goal was limited because of the the uh, the vision. You had to. Be, no one really could envision this, um, and, and it, you rode the wave out. And if you happen to be really good at it, and you wanted to put your hours in, and and you know, yeah, a lot of a lot of factors, luck, um, and. Uh, right place, right time, all that. I mean, and you could wind up and dedication, but dedication and and uh, extra effort continually and not being discouraged by the lack of recognition for many years was what, you know, what paved the way. But so now I just think that some people, I get customers come up to me, you know, my daughter Sally, she she bakes great cupcakes, and she's gonna we're gonna she's gonna go to CIA, and she won a cupcake war in high school, and we're gonna she's gonna go she's gonna be a baker, 
I'm like, good luck, great. I mean, you know, but as but years ago, you had a blue. It was a blue collar job for a chef like myself. You got in the kitchen, you worked your butt off. You you really didn't. You guy paid you three twenty five, five dollars an hour, whatever it was. They didn't pay you overtime, and you you climbed your way up, right? And it was mostly a blue collar parent thing. Even my parents didn't want me to be a chef, right? And and. Then you fast forward to the year 2000, 2005, and the children of doctors and lawyers and hedge fund want to be chefs, all right? Yeah. People that have had chefs in their house growing up want to be chefs, right? And this, this makes the, that parent scratch their head like, why the hell would they want to do that? Now, that person comes into the restaurant, in some cases, that particular child, comes into the restaurant after going to school and you tell them, by the way, they, they come to me and say, by the way, chef, I'm going to need 4th July weekend off. I'm going out to the Hamptons with my parents. We do this every, every year. And I'm like, <laughs> not anymore. I said, we work on the weekends. All of a sudden I said, if you don't show up, we're going to have to let you go. Yeah. They call in sick, right? They let down the whole staff. Our customer has a bad experience. We let them go. Guess who calls? The lawyer parent calls and threatens to sue you because you let little Susie or Marky go. And they don't understand that the commitment is to, to please other people on holidays. And it's not the, you know, you, they didn't realize what they had to give up to yeah. a certain degree. We don't have understudies, right? We might be a celebrity, right? We might be performing, but... In the restaurant business, when you don't show up, the show goes on. It just goes on without you, which means everyone else has to work harder. And in the front of the house case, they make more money when a waiter doesn't show up because they split all the other tips. And in the kitchen, right. they, they work harder and they get the same money. So yeah. it's, so, so there's, a, there's a difference in when I was in the River Cafe and we had the this is back in the 80s, you had a team of chefs. And when I say team, it was a team. It wasn't just different stations. They worked together and they wanted to do more coverage. When we were busy, they were like, yes, you know, we're going to break a record. Nowadays, it's like, oh, my God, another ticket came in after 930. And or, I, I, you know, I'm not, they can't pay me to do it. You know, but it becomes that, you know, competitive Team, real team effort of meaning, you know, we're in our second overtime now. We're going to win the game. We're going to the New York Times building, reading the paper, waiting for it to come out to see everyone in that kitchen wanted a good review. That that enthusiasm is probably out there, but you don't see it as much. So how do you manage that? How do you either get the the young kids fired up or manage their expectations? I, how, how do you do that? Well, I, uh, let me take it by managing their expectations. I don't think, I think there's a lot of people with low expectations that are in the restaurant business now. I don't think they all want to be chefs. I think that, you know, when they become a sous chef, they, they think they're made men or, you know, like they're, they're okay with it. They're like not, you know, so, so managing their expectations, well, their expectation might be different a little bit in the fact that, you know, they want to work a certain schedule. They want to learn. Yes, learning is important. Uh, and I speak about the the, the, the the people with white coats on that, not the front. Um, they, 
I think learning is important, freedom to do things, having an opinion. And it depends on the cook, the American cook who went to school. They might have a different idea of their career than a, a Latin cook who's just as good, who wants to show up and is a worker. And when he gets up, he wants his raise here and there, wants to come in, do his job, doesn't necessarily go out to eat. And some of the American uh, uh, employees as well, they don't eat out. I don't think in the same style of restaurant they work, mainly because they probably can't afford it. Mm-hmm. They also uh, aren't reading Food Art Magazine and Gourmet. Maybe they're online, maybe they're not, but they're not coming in with the a, a picture out of a magazine. Hey, chef, can we try this? Now, maybe they're doing that to a certain degree below my, uh, underneath uh, some of my other supervisors, but because I'm a little bit more detached than I as a working everyday chef. Uh, but our chefs do come up with, um, there are expectations to them. We set expectations. Every chef has to send, we have a huge WhatsApp uh, chef talk, but all the chefs have to post their specials on and communicate almost on a daily basis. Not every chef has a special every day, but that that kind of camaraderie and talk is very helpful and somewhat a little bit competitive of, look what I did with soft shells this week. Look what I'm doing with the octopus and the sea urchin, whatever it is. But it, it sparks dialogue and idea. And that's we have that for our managers. And we're starting it with the bartenders now, too. So, the, so we're creating the platform to keep them more interested. One of the other differences I see with the chefs, when I was a chef, I never sat in the office, nor did I want to. I had a purchasing agent which we were lucky to have. And I didn't want to be on my laptop. I didn't have a laptop back then. We had a fax machine, no cell phones. I wanted to be in the kitchen, checking the garbage cans, teaching people, mentoring them, seasoning, butchering, hands, hands, hands. And now the modern day chef, the younger one, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent, they like to read either, sit on the, uh, the laptop, and the chefs are doing too much paperwork. The chefs are costing schedules and costing this. and blah, blah. That should be done by somebody else. I think if you have a great ball player, he's no good sitting on the bench. He should be in the game. And that's, that, that's one of my pet peeves. You can get an admin person to do the admin. The chef, if you're an all-star with your hands and your palate and your vision, you should be on the field. So, that, sorry, go ahead. No, no, but that's, that's what I see with the younger guys. They want to spend time on their laptop. The chefs, to me, should not be doing admin work, even though they're good at it. They should be in the kitchen teaching. But they do have to learn how to manage costs and stuff, right? As a a chef? What's this? So they do have to learn how to manage costs, for example. You don't learn how to manage costs if you're not in the kitchen. You know how you manage costs? You, You make sure there's no waste. You make sure people are hustling. And you, you manage costs in your head. You, you can lay a format out, I'm saying, but two hours a day on a computer for a chef is two hours and not in the kitchen. That should be formed out to one of the front of the house people. So say, here, here's my numbers. Punch them in. You can, you can handle the invoices. I mean, if the, you know, it's usually in the front, there's very little preparation to do during the day, especially a restaurant that doesn't serve lunch. Where in the back, you got to produce. Right. You got to make it. This, once the night you set at the end of the night on a Tuesday, Wednesday lunch, there's nothing to do. So if you have a if you have a certain amount of structured front house labor, 
That admin stuff should be done by that those people and the cook. But some of the chefs like sitting there doing it, which for me, I never did. So I mean, I'm so, sorry. Go ahead. I'm certainly capable of it, but I, my I want to be on the field. Put me in the game, coach. I want to be in the kitchen. I see a byproduct. I'm turning it into money, and that's called managing costs. Managing costs on paper. That's that's a guess, right? And how you make a schedule of once a week, it takes you 20 minutes. You shouldn't have to make a schedule every day. You shouldn't have to change things. It's just I find it to be a waste of time for to have your MVP of the kitchen on a computer. So is that what you encourage for your own chefs that they spend their time? Well, yeah, I, our chefs are responsible for food costs. We do have a central purchaser. They're responsible for quality, but they're all and scheduling. But like I said. Scheduling is scheduling. You know, you make a schedule, and but you, if you're not in the kitchen monitoring when people are supposed to leave and come and go, if you're not in there making sure they're working at 110 or at least 90%, then you're, you're it doesn't matter what you're, <laughs> what you do. You, if you can't see what's happening on the field, you're not getting the maximum potential. So now that you are in a senior position managing a, a dozen restaurants, well, owning a dozen restaurants and then managing others, do you get to spend much time in kitchens these days? When we open up, I spend time in the kitchens and I, uh, and I, I expedite for the first week or two and I work with the chefs. And we're at the point now where our chefs are, we, use, we can afford really good chefs. We can train from within and promote. I miss being in the kitchen on a daily basis, but, you know, I see from my experience, I can see things. I can walk around a kitchen basically and tell you where the wasted labor is, where the wasted food is, who's hustling, who's not, and where, uh, where, uh, where we can improve on things. Um, I would love uh, to be, I listen, I wish I had more, but, you know, I just say, I designed the front of the house restaurants, not to the ones that, I can decorate them. I'm not an architect and I'm not a designer per se, but I can certainly do a good job and put one together. So I enjoy that. I don't get involved with the wine list as much. I just approve them or the cocktails. I just approve. But then the food, we're constantly changing. But some, uh, here I go contradicting myself a little because when I see something on my phone I like or a dish that I think our company can use as inspiration, I'll push that out to all the chefs. And say, oh, by the way, you know what? Corn's in season. This is a nice idea. Or why don't we try and do this with the cotton candy? Or why don't we try? Look how cool this new this new thing is. You know, but but it's not like a mandatory. It's just to keep their eyes open to maybe a clever idea with uh, you know, like I said, suckling pig or something that we have a Latin concept. I'll say you guys might be able to do something like this, or you know. So, but that's being on the phone. Uh, doing business, you know, and again, and you have, there's people on cell phones all day long in kitchens now, you know, and that's a lack of productivity, smoking and cell phone work in kitchens in general, sometimes can be an issue depending on where you have to go to smoke. Sometimes you got to leave a building, you got to, you know, it takes, so if someone smokes two cigarettes in an hour, that's, you know, it's 20 minutes every hour that they're not in the kitchen. So that it's less and less frequent. Um, but also, again, you know, when someone stops and checks their cell phone every 10 minutes, uh, the, the productivity goes down. 
So you got to so be the chefs and the managers, sous chefs in the kitchens. They really got to create a, uh, a a teamwork atmosphere where it's time to take. Listen, everyone should have the ability to take them to check their phone. It's just you know I can't really imagine saying you can't have your phone with you in this day and age. But you know what? Go, take a bathroom break. Check your phone every uh, you know couple hours or whatever. But do it. Do it quietly, you know, because when it's like, you know, you, if I'm in the building, which I'm not in every building and walking around and I see two people on a cell phone, I'm like, well, if they, if they're doing it in front of me, then it's just common everyday stuff. Right. But if our numbers are good and things that people are happy and we're doing, we have a successful restaurant, you know what? Something's going right. So change is good. change is good, but I'm not that it doesn't always have to be the way it was. Right. Great. As long as it works. So you, yeah. you said you get ideas on your phone. Where do you go to get ideas for stuff? Well, no, I, I don't on Instagram. That's popular. I'm just, I, Yeah. They just pop up on my Instagrams, you know, or the stories or this or that. Yeah. I don't really go online looking for, I travel. I was in Vancouver. Was that Victoria? I was in San Diego. I, you know, I travel when I eat out and I travel. Uh, but I also daydream, you know, I think about what will, uh, what we're looking seasonally or, you know, I have a wealth of knowledge through the years. So when like social season comes, I tell my chefs, just call me. I'll give you 10 ideas. I'll tell you why this works. Why did I, most likely I've tried something that you're thinking about. Yeah. Or I can you, tell you what was yeah. You've been through what? 30, 40 soft shell crab seasons now. Uh, <laughs> 40. But also that, that's a great point you make. Because I'm an, I hate to say it, but well, expert. I'm like an expert at Thanksgiving because you only get once a year to do it. So you can't be a 25-year-old chef and say you're an expert when you did it five times, right? So like when you do it, you know, and you take a lot of pride, like I love making good turkey and all of that stuff, but you have to want the same as brunch. Some guys are good at brunch. You know why? Because they like to work in brunch. And if you really, if you want the best brunch in the city, you guess what? You got to work it. You got to be there. Most chefs don't want to be there on a Sunday for very various reasons. But if you want to have the best brunch, you you show up, you work the room like it's a Friday, Saturday night, you get creative like it's your first menu opening in New York, and you give people what they want and you execute. Then that Sunday brunch will turn into a busier Sunday evening. Then your Sundays become as strong as your Fridays. And all of a sudden, Friday, Saturday, Sunday becomes a good weekend. But those, that's always been my philosophy on Sundays when I worked at the River Cafe Park because I, I you know, it's like, I, it's not going to be great unless I'm there on Sunday. So I would work Sunday and take off another day or something. But, you know, it's hard to tell people with kids or a, a chef, you know, you got to work Sunday. So everything's different. So it's different. You, you now, most of your restaurants are in New Jersey, right? And you have one. We have eight, eight in New Jersey and a bakery and we're opening uh, one, two. Four more in Jersey, and uh, we have one being open built in Florida. We have another one being built in New York that'll give us two in New York City, and then we consult at the Garden City Hotel. We have a restaurant in White Plains. We consult in Saratoga, and we uh, we have a, ma a management deal out in Rhode Island now. Um, and we're in Charlotte, North Carolina, with two current restaurants open and a roof bar, and we got two more being built. Wow, that's you're busy. Yeah. And uh, so what are some uh, food items, menu items that are in some of your restaurants that you're psyched about? Some what? 
some menu items in your restaurants that you're psyched about at the moment? Well, we have some. We 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 do this. Right now, we're working on these tomahawk steaks because we just open white plains where they hang on this thing like the bacon. We carve it at the table. Um, we're working on this Hobbit House chocolate dessert that's custom designed because we have Hobbit houses in the resort in Rhode Island that you actually can eat dinner on. In these, they're carved out of rocks with the big round door. Really cool. So uh, there's lobster dumplings, crab cakes, soft crabs in season. Lots of crudo lately, um, whole fish, uh, bone marrow, pink crab legs. We have one of our restaurants, Jersey Shore. We have like a little fish market in the dining room now with whole fish and fresh catch and a scale there. You know, it's kind of a tiptoe in the water as to what Milos does. Not necessarily that vast or that high end, uh, but it's it's appealing. Um, you know, our pastry program with the bakery is still strong. Um, and again, we're doing watermelon salads with burrata and asparagus. We try to be seasonal. We got some Asian touches going on. We're starting to dry age ducks and, uh, and, uh, uh suckling pigs. We'll start doing later into the summer as a barbecue kind of, uh, 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 thing. And, uh, we have a, Wood-burning pizza restaurant, and so we're starting to mess around with calzones. We're doing it. We put a wood-burning oven in the parking lot for happy hour. We're starting to work happy hour in the summer down here in the Jersey Shore with uh, dog-friendly happy hours where you can bring your pets. We call bring them to the parking lot, and uh, and uh, you know we're always trying to do something innovative and and market because it's competitive and. Uh, one of the things we find being out of the city and in the suburbs is that you need to change your menu more often because there's no tourism, there's no conventions. You're feeding the same XYZ people from the same 10, 15 mile radius. So, you know, the challenge is to stay fresh and exciting, you know, and that's, yeah. uh, that's what you got to do. Yeah. I mean, and it's, listen, it's a, it's a tough business. You know, you got to be on it. You got to work a lot. And if your name's on the door, you've got to, you know, you got to go to the extra effort to protect the brand and make sure everyone is at least trying to give it uh, the best effort to make the customer happy. I think along the way, uh, the word hospitality, the business we're in, hospitality business, gets a little bit lost with why we're doing this. Right. With, uh, you know, because you get caught up in the celebrity, caught in the money, the investment, the Instagram, the but, and you forget to say hello and goodbye at the door with your customer or make sure they really had a good time. Or did they feel welcome? Were you really are you really a hospitable restaurant or, or you're a hostile restaurant? Yeah, what is it? You know, because sometimes that without the right mentoring in the front of the house. You, you tend to get away from that and not be thankful enough for people's business. Uh, sincerely, like letting, and that goes like down to the hostess, to the waitress, to the waiter, like making sure they feel like we really appreciate eating with us. So, you know, the other stuff, you, know, you can bubble everything up to the top, but the fundamentals need to be correct. Yeah, I mean, in in recent months, some of the best experiences I've had, I mean, the food's been good, obviously, but it is the, 
the really warm, welcoming reception that I get. Not not as a food writer. They don't know who I am. I just go in as a regular local customer. And the warmth is, uh, that makes a huge difference. The years ago, it was making the customer was the happy was the real challenge. Execution and making the customer happy. Now the challenge is making the employee happy. Oh, interesting. And and you need, everyone needs to be happy in order for them to perform. Well, well but we, we, the, the, you got to define happiness, right? I mean, happiness comes at a cost, right? I mean, you're in the restaurant business. Yes, you shouldn't be, uh, you should be, get a break and you should do this and that, but it is what it is, right? Um, the, but making sure you're hiring the right people that understands the journey and, and the mission. And why we're here, and and what it's going to take. Yes, you got to work holidays. Yes, you got to work late. Night. You know, this is part of restaurant. You know, I have a a bakery that's been around for eighty five years, right? Eighty five years, and now they're crying that they need air conditioning in the bakery. I'm like, there hasn't been air conditioning for eighty five years. All of a sudden, we need air conditioning. We don't need air conditioning to produce the pastry. We need air conditioning to make you comfortable for the six weeks in the summer that it's going to be above. In maybe 90 degrees or 85, right? Well, That's why bakers early in the morning and bake when it's cooler. So to spend a hundred grand to 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 make it air conditioned is a big decision to make people happy, or maybe you just close early on the hot days and save 80 grand. <laughs> That's a good thought. So, this, is, this is Dixie Lee Bakery you're talking about, right? This is true, yeah. Yeah, but again, there's a, there's a handful that would require. If you're going to be a baker or a chef, I don't think that you were you you planned on getting in the business to work in an air conditioned kitchen. But these are the differences between old school and what's modern, right? If you go work in a, a restaurant that's built in New York City in a high rise in the uh, in the Hudson Yards or something, I'm sure there's air conditioning in it, but it's so, not the norm, right? So but before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you a little bit about dry aging duck, which you mentioned, and you are a longtime steak expert, obviously. So can you talk a little bit about dry aging other other meats besides steak? Well, we dry age uh, we dry age uh, lamb pretty successfully, but again, lamb doesn't have the marbleization in it anyway, and I don't think that lamb uh, benefits as much as beef. But when you dry age beef correctly, it's just wonderful and marvelous. When you dry age duck, it's um, we're uh, we're getting a little more funk to the duck, but it's mostly for for the skin too. We kind of Peking style it a little bit, but we dry age it to take some moisture out of the fat. We usually marinate it first, score the skin, and we age it for the duck. We can do uh, about eight or nine days drying out not necessarily we're not looking for 40 days on a duck because uh it just doesn't happen i'm also going to start looking into the uh, research and some of the dry age fish that's been going on i haven't got my hands around that yet uh but i'm certainly interested in learning more about that i just can't put fish into my dry aging meat box because it'll destroy the fish will absorb the uh, the meat will absorb the fish flavor uh, but I also, I just got 30,000 bees in my yard. So I'm starting to produce, well, I'm starting to oversee the production of honey. So that's one of my latest projects. But uh, the duck, that we've done ducks before, but I want to get back. During the pandemic, 
you know, we were doing a lot more ambitious uh, than before the pandemic, ambitious things. And then we lost so much labor. We had to cut back on some things. Now we got to now the momentum is back and the labor force is strong. So it's uh, unfortunately the economy isn't great, but we're uh, we're starting to revamp lots of uh, menus now. And you also haven't you been doing stuff with different uh, breeds of cattle or different producers yeah. of cattle? Yeah, we were working uh, with uh, a guy, guys in Kentucky who uh, blended uh, Wagyu with prime uh, Angus. It's called F1. And it was a hybrid between prime American beef and one of the Wagyu's. And so the price came down from the Wagyu, went up from the prime, still had a good chew on it and lots of fat. But not so fatty where, I don't know about you, but I can't eat more than three ounces of Wagyu. It's like having foie gras in the 90s, right? Right. And where foie gras is a whole other story. Where you, you, I can say this to you, it used to be on every menu, everywhere. You know, everywhere. And it's like that, both terrine and a hot one. And uh, we don't sell it as much anymore because it's just not popular as much. And uh, so Wagyu is like that. You can't, it's not really... It's a steak to be split if you go eight ounces, but but the hybrids are better because it has that cowboy to it. It has that little bite back that I think Americans, we want to use our knife to cut a steak and chew it. It's part of the dining experience. It's part of the satisfaction of getting a big steak, right? It's working on it. Like right. the reward, you, right? Not necessarily a tough one. I'm just saying, you know, you don't. I don't want meat melting in my mouth. Sorry. Right. You want to chew on it. I want to chew it. So are you not working with the F1 anymore? We are. We took a pause because we've uh, our box went down for a while and we're gonna, we're restarting up with them again soon. But we had we 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 couldn't use as many animals as they were giving us because of the problem in the restaurant business is I take a, a whole carcass, I got a gazillion hamburgers. I got like all this ground meat and I don't know where to store it and put it. So the the primals were distributed amongst my staff, and boy was it good. But then I, you know, I I I wind up freezing all this hamburger meat, and that's not necessarily what I want to do. So we have to figure out how to distribute correctly. Well, I, I you know have- all these things like even like nose to tail and buying whole hogs. You know, there's a reason people stop doing it because sometimes it costs you more because you can't sell it all. You and know, it's, it's one thing to say, well, if I sell uh, 60 hamburgers and this much stew, over that, so you're creating more work for yourself and you wind up at the end of the month saying, well, how the hell did that happen? We lost, we lost money on it. So you got to, you know, you got to be really, that, you know what? Back to my point, the chef has to be in the kitchen, not on a flat screen. Looking in the wastebasket, seeing what's getting wasted, cutting down on all of that. Uh, but there's a lot of ways, um, especially with the younger people, especially with turnover. Turnover is the enemy in a restaurant. And there's a lot there's a lot of transitioning. Back to the word hospitality. Those chefs, some of the restaurateurs are not even hospitable enough to call you up when three people want to go somewhere else. Or or they or a chef will leave and take try and take half the staff. So you gotta write contracts and you know, years ago you would always call somebody. And say, listen, I got two guys over here looking for a job. They said they got a busy Saturday night or they want more money and we're offering more money. Or or they'll just, in, in many cases during the pandemic, the people got poached. They gave them signing bonuses. And, uh, you know, we had, you got to do what you got to do to survive. Don't get me wrong. I'm a fighter. 
but uh, you know, the word hospitality should remain in the forefront of everything we do. Well, and, and you were saying in the past you would call the other restaurants if you were. I said, listen, I got you guys here. I'm gonna probably take one. I just maybe you want to call talk to the other guys so you don't get sandbagged and 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 get stuck, right? Or 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 these guys leave for good reason. Maybe they got caught stealing. Maybe they, you know, maybe you know, they give him a chance to recoup them before I take. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, that's, again, those are, uh, though, that was the ethics you had back in the day. And, and what comes guess... around. <laughs> Sorry, you were saying? What comes around goes around sometimes. Yes, yes. I uh, I work hard not to burn bridges because your former well, competitors you start working with. Yeah, well, it just this we're all gonna be we're all in the same business. We're all gonna be in the same boat at different times. Right? right? When we're gonna so you try to be hospitable and competitive, even though working in New York is very interesting too, because the camaraderie any city or the camaraderie amongst the chefs is usually really, really good. Even though you're a little bit competitive, which is our nature, the respect and the camaraderie and is still there. Even if you're a block away, if block away, you're competing. But there's so many people in New York. It's not like a block away in the suburbs. Right. You there's know? customers for everybody. Be a block away from a restaurant in New York and never walk past it because you go a different way, you know, right. or forget it. Absolutely. Well, we've we've used up all of our time and I am sure that you are busy doing other things because you've got a dozen restaurants and a bunch of contracts and whatever. So I'll let you get back to it. I appreciate your taking the time to hang out. Maybe we can do it in real life sometime soon. I'll find I'd love to. Yeah. Let's get some lunch on the books. It'd be good to see you. Yes, that would be great. All right. Nice to see you. Thank you.